sometimes you just gotta love a scoundrel who has no shame. All right, this is my this is my my well, take on this whole story. Which, which, labeling, which candidate are we talking? Labeling about? labeling this person a scoundrel perhaps is is um, unfair. You really think so? Well, let me just a raconteur, perhaps. Let me fill David in on what we're talking. <laughs> yeah, a raconteur. Yeah. Um, so there was a colorful, report. colorful. Th this story developed over over a period of three or four days. All right. It started out with a potentially dark and, and sad story about a uh, an airplane that crashed um, at an airport uh, near Nashville, I believe, and uh, and they found the airplane crashed, but there was no pilot to be found anywhere. And this is reminiscent of a couple you know, of... Like, that's never happened. Yeah, I know, right, yeah. So we're wondering, ooh, is this that guy again, right? Um, but, uh, so then... Barefoot Bandit's still in jail, right? I Well, you never know. You know, he's a very clever guy, and... Uh, I I hear he's giving ground instruction to inmates. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Yeah, right. He's running a. If you liked Con Air, wait for Con Air too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then a couple of days later, uh, this, another story comes out and it explains the whole thing. And I'm really summarizing this. I'm really paraphrasing. But uh, so basically, it turns out that the guy who was piloting this uh, airplane, what was the airplane? It was like a, a, a beach eight twin. Yeah, Twin B Beach, yeah. Twin Beach, okay. Um, turns out that the guy crashed this airplane and just kind of calmly Hang on got... a second, hang on a second. He did not crash this airplane. What did he do? That's he right. intentionally landed it gear up. Okay. And on that's... A former, on, a, on a former air park runway. All right. Okay, that's what he did. Now, intentionally landing gear up is different from crashing how... Well, for one crash, thing, it's a, not a crash. crash. Yeah, for one thing, it's not a crash. crash for another thing, I mean, you know. <laughs> for another thing, uh, <laughs> the aircraft's under control, and the pilot knows deliberately he is he is going to soon be in contact with the ground. Okay, a crash is none of the above. Okay, so then, uh, it, so it turns it usually out that ends in a sudden stop instead of a gradual yeah. deceleration. So however it was, he got this airplane on the ground. He got it on the airplane on the ground. Um, and, and he just, like there was nobody around, so he just called his wife, and she came and picked him up. And, uh, and then the authorities found the airplane, and everybody started to freak out. And then this guy stepped. I, I, I don't think that there was a reporting requirement in effect here. I don't think so either. I don't, there's, show me where it says he's got to call the local uh, law enforcement, the FAA, and or the NTSB. For certain uh, types of events, yeah. Well, it, you know, and I don't know whether he's uh, required to notify his uh, probation officer when he uh, when he crashes now, in there. Now, that, that's a different issue. Yeah, that's I'm, a different issue. Yeah, because it turns out that this guy, all right, is uh, as I put it, a rascal, or as Jeb puts it, a raconteur. Um, this guy's got quite a history. He. Uh, uh, he, he actually goes so far on. He has, so he has a LinkedIn page. LinkedIn is the website for. I don't know. It's it's for people looking for work. I guess is one way well, to put it's a it. Professional network. There you go. Professional networking website. Right. And uh, and on his LinkedIn page, he describes himself very openly as an expert smuggler. He is very open about the fact that he was for a period of his life a an active smuggler from South America into the States. Um, now, I have a hard time with him describing himself as an expert smuggler when you take into consideration the fact that he actually got caught and did 11 years in jail. Um, but uh, yeah, a, a, a judge who dealt with this guy labeled him, quote-unquote, a giant among giants really in, yeah. in a sophisticated international drug smuggling ring. 
that triggered what was at the time the largest civil seizure effort in Florida history. When they, 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 the Florida authorities sought to seize more than five million in property, including a farm, two airplanes, two boats, and cash allegedly held in shell companies around. That wouldn't be any relation to Shell Petroleum or Shell Pasta. That would be Shell companies. Right. So, so uh, yeah. Well, I, I think that's pretty good testimony. Testimonial of your expertise as a smuggler. I mean, even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. So even a good smuggler is going to get busted once in a while. <laughs> in a everybody, everybody has a bad day. Yeah. Okay. Right. And apparently, he had one in his beach, his twin beach, this particular day. Uh, well, now again, Jack. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I'm not yanking your chain here. I'm not picking on you or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, yeah. He had a bad day. He's flying. Uh, this Twin Beach, he had an annual, according to the one of the news stories I read. He had an annual in Florida, flew it um, um, up towards Nashville. He stopped twice for gas en route. He arrives over Nashville. Um, at, at, it's dark, uh, uh, late in the evening, shall we say, 9, 10, 11 o'clock uh, time frame. Um, can't get the gear down. Now, the gears function perfectly, apparently, for two other... Uh, landings earlier in the day. All of a sudden, the gear won't come down. Um, and apparently, he, he's lost communications, or maybe the, maybe the airplane didn't have communications or something like that, which is, of course, t- totally legal. Um, so he couldn't really, you know, radio Nashville International his problem and or, or swoop in there, landing unannounced at night without electrical system, without communications. But he knew of uh, a former uh, air park, a grass strip, apparently, um, where he used to fly in and out of, perhaps um, not totally above board, perhaps not, we don't know, and knew that if he did X, Y, and Z in a certain sequence and used you know, some Kentucky windage or, or Tennessee windage or, or something else like that, that there was this nice flat area of grass on which he could set down this airplane, away from any other airports or any of the other airplanes, away from any residences, and uh, with a good likelihood of getting away with it, so to speak. Uh, and that's exactly what he did. He did uh, get he, away with it. He did get away with it. He got out. And, and, and again, any landing you can walk away from, which he obviously did. Oh, yeah. Is a good he, landing. He didn't set off the ELT. Right. The airplane will live to fly again. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just a couple of props, a tear down, probably some belly damage. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, dirt has rocks in it. Rocks are rough on aluminum. Uh, trust us. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I'm not even sure it rose to the level of a reportable incident, according to NTSB regs. It, it so there you go. Yeah. Uh, as far as the law enforcement issues about it, well, now that's 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 something for him and his attorney to work out. Well, there's another squiggle here too. Uh, uh yes. Okay, go ahead. Okay. And apparently, he did all this without a current medical. Without story. a medical, yeah. Okay. Oh. And well, the, that the, the that Twin Beach doesn't qual- have lived. I the, mean, the Twin Beach doesn't qualify as a uh, LSA. I take it. No. no, no, that was a joke. Just the fact that yeah. the wheels fold up is kind of a breaker there. Yeah, right. Multi-engine, two it, two four hundred fifty horse Pratts. Yeah, it's going to be you know 
Yeah, it's kind of yeah outside that. Now, uh, some some people have questioned whether his criminal past. I mean, no joke. He did eleven. He's very very, very upfront about this um, on his LinkedIn page that he did eleven years in jail for this uh, smuggling conviction. Uh, and some people have questioned whether or not you can actually get a pilot's license and or a medical with that kind of a history. Is there any issue there? Um. I don't believe it's a breaker. I, mean, you, I don't think if so. It either. is if you don't report it, and then they find out about it. That, yeah, would, that would be, be a, a shit. that would be enough. But it could be something, and, and we don't know when. We don't know the circumstances of his uh, sentencing and incarceration, etc. We don't know, for example, if the FAA revoked his pilot certificate, mm -hmm. or do we? I don't know. Is it in the, is it in the news story? I we don't know if it. the FAA revoked his, his pilot certificate from back in the 80s. Um, it's entirely conceivable they didn't, A. It's entirely conceivable if they did um, that it came with a proviso that you know he's ineligible for any pilot certificate for X number of years. And X plus one, he can go back and, and reapply and, and, and take, a flight, take a flight test and, and get a certificate back. Or get a certificate back. We don't know when his medical, his prior medical, which obviously had one at some point, uh, when that expired. Uh, he may have had it a week earlier and it just expired. Uh, we we haven't really. I'm just kind of like in awe of the fact that this guy's flying muscle memory is so good that he found this field in the dark near yeah. Opryland at night successfully mm -hmm. yeah. yeah you know if he'd have been one block over and come down in somebody's subdivision right that would have probably caught the authorities attention much earlier than two days later <laughs> you think you think maybe this is maybe not the first time he landed at this particular strip in the dark well, he says no. as much. He wink, says wink. he's been using it for years. Fifty. There were no lights, but I'd been flying in and out of that place for fifty-five years, yeah. and was familiar with the terrain and geography. Yeah. Now, for listeners who are, are about to, uh, I don't know, uh, turn off their iPads or iPods or whatever, we're not advocating any of this. Um, you know, Absolutely not. Count count the number of of poor practices employed here. Uh, the flip side of which is, uh, it is entertaining. And at the end of the day, we're all about entertainment. <laughs> hey, welcome, folks, to episode 284 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise That's yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders they, now they, they, does that say ucap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> <laughs> and you're on site clear right check eventual ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and alpha we're recording this episode on uh, Thursday, April 26, 2012, and joining me here in the virtual hangar, my two good friends. Uh, first of all, uh, Dave Higdon's here, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you doing tonight? Well, geared down and locked so far today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I, I can find my house in the dark uh, and a couple of airports here in the in town in the dark but i really wouldn't want to yeah yeah doing fine we we had some record heat here this week uh 
I mean, already up in the high 90s. It uh, doesn't happen in April generally. Here. You had so, high 90s in April. Yeah. Well, seriously? Yeah, seriously. We haven't had the 90s here yet. Yeah, dude. Uh, and, and the Northeast was getting snow when we were getting the 90s. Yeah. I mean, man, there's... Some whiskey tangle foxtrot weather out there. Maybe. Yeah, well, it's you know, it's a thing. It's a thing. Reminds me to check with my insurance company. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and also here in the virtual hangar is uh, Jim Burnside talking to us from uh, somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Uh, how you doing tonight? I was. I'm hesitating here because I still have the note here to saying that you're you were in Washington D.C. and I started yeah, to read. No, I started no. to read that location in, in the wrong. You know. No, I, 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 I have not been in Sarasota the whole time since I was in D.C., nor since we last chatted, but uh, I am in Sarasota right now. You you are, are, are you, you're, no, you're not in Sarasota, you're somewhere near Sarasota, right? I'm somewhere, excuse me, I'm, yes, me. yes, right. Can you, can you find it in your heart to forgive me? Yes. I am somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Yeah. Okay. How are you doing? Somewhere near Mayaka? Somewhere near uh, Yuraka, yeah. You're my, uh, how you doing, how you doing, Jeb, what's going on? I'm doing well, doing well, um... Uh, playing with a few projects, uh, suffering from writer's block, um, uh, and uh, trying to uh, you know get through the rest of the week here. I'll have it all done by uh, close of business tomorrow, but uh, some of it won't be pretty. Um, but um, you know, uh, uh, wordsmithing sometimes is not pretty. Yeah, I know, I know. Now, I think it was last week or it was recently that Dave told us about his uh, brush with uh, tornadoes. Uh, you guys had some exciting, or you were supposed to have uh, some exciting weather recently. Well. Um, I saw a tweet or, or an email or, or something from you uh, to that effect, and we did have um, some some interesting weather. There was a system um, off the Gulf that was moving up from, uh, I get really below the Keys. It was spawning a bunch of, um, um, of stuff, but uh, the rotation was kind of all wrong, and um, it really didn't have a whole lot of uh, temperature variation behind it or, or pressure differential. So it really just kind of turned into some wind and rain. Since then, we've had, you know, almost the same sorts of wind. We've had, uh, oh, I don't know, you know, 15 knots, got 25 for a couple of days earlier in the week. Hmm. Um, but today is like 85, low humidity, not a cloud in the sky. Yeah. Uh, just a wonderful day. Yeah. Uh, so, and we needed the rain that we got last weekend. Uh, and we need a lot more. Uh, it's it's really sad some some places around here. Yeah. And before I forget, I'm Jack Hodgson, and I am coming to you once again from high atop Lookout Point in Nottingham, New Hampshire. Whoa! Yeah. You're back at Lookout Point. I'm back at Lookout Point, and uh, now what's in the cooler? Uh, it's uh, uh, Sunset Wheat, Line and Cools. Oh, cool. Yeah. I like. Yeah. What's the matter, yeah. David? Is that okay? That, well, we're back with the program. Thank you. Yes. No, no, yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the beer that made UCAP great. <laughs> that's right. Or or the or the the beer that UCAP made great, or something like that. Something I don't like know. that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, we did have that snow, Dave. Oh, it didn't snow here, but uh, there was a big storm came through here um, a couple of days ago. It was a, uh, it, it was literally a nor'easter. If it had been if it had come through a, m- a month ago, we would have had a you know a foot or more of snow. It was. It rained pretty hard for a couple of days. Hmm. Well, it it just almost knocked me over backward. Uh, I was up earlier than I really needed to be, and uh, 
the uh, Weather Channel has got a God-given weather reports uh, with snow on the ground from New York State. Yeah. And I'm going, please tell me that that's archive tape. No, the little box says live yeah. April 24, 2012. It's like Whiskey Tangle Freaking Foxtrot. It's snowing in April in New York. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's been the, crazy. The, the, phrase, the phrase blowing snow takes on a whole new meaning. A whole new meaning. A whole new meaning. All right. That's enough weather talk. They're screaming at their pie pods right now, so we'll move on here. Um, so this, this, this uh, information about the drones flying in the, in the national airspace, the U.S. airspace, uh, came out. I, I have not even begun to digest any of it. Jeb, have you read any of this? I don't know why. I, I think- I've, I've poked around it a little bit. Um, this is... Um, some some material that was produced by the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation EFF uh, as a result of a um, a FOIA request and in fact a FOIA lawsuit that they had to file uh, into the FAA. Right, FOIA uh, for to, people not in the know is FOIA. A f- excuse me, yeah, Freedom of Information Act, which is a federal law that requires uh, under certain circumstances federal agencies to um, disclose on request information they may have that has not been previously disclosed. Um, And uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation um, actually had to sue the FAA Mm -hmm. uh, to obtain this information. This is a list uh, of the various locations and jurisdictions and organizations, be they public or private, who have applied for and received, well, applied for and or received uh, authorization from the FAA to operate unmanned aircraft mm-hmm. in, in the continental United States, or in, in the United States airspace. Uh, and in fact, the EFF put together a map, an interactive map, um, and you can click on it and find out, you know, where near you or whether perhaps your, your own jurisdiction has the authority to operate uh, a drone in the airspace uh, over your head. Uh, the closest one to me uh, is Polk County, Florida. Not coincidentally, uh, the uh, county in which Sun and Fun is run each year. Mm-hmm. Is it, uh, yeah, any other interesting um, locations? Well, that's, that's pretty much as far as I've dived into it. Um, um, the... the um, According to the EFF, and I'm just reading here from, from one of their web pages, um, the second list they received includes all the manufacturers that have applied for authorizations to test fly their drones. So the list is less surprising uh, than the ones um, already operating said drones, but includes manufacturers like Honeywell, um, Raytheon, General Atomics. Uh, th- this is you know nothing new. So the list also includes uh, in numbers. Serial numbers and model names, uh, to be, which can be useful when determining when and, and where these drones are flying. But um, um, you know, we've known for a number of years that these drones are in operation um, are, uh, at the border. The uh, the uh, Customs and Border Protection Agency uses drones to patrol the borders north and south. Uh, DARPA, various branches of the military, use these things. I, I, it, this is not this is not news. Mm-hmm. But what is kind of sort of news is is the list here includes um, a lot of universities and colleges, Cornell, University of Colorado, Georgia Tech, uh, police departments in Kansas, Arlington, Kansas State, 
Yeah, Ogden, Utah, uh, North Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, Seattle, Washington. Uh, these these police departments apparently feel that they need uh, uh, these drones. And, but it also includes, you know, places, the, the EFF calls them small cities, um, um, like Otter Tail, Minnesota. I am not making this up. <laughs> yeah. Or Harrington, Kansas. I've never Thank even you. heard of yeah. these places. Uh-huh. I, and, I read about Harrington uh, uh, mm-hmm. several days ago, and I'm like, wow. And they'd been at it for several years. Yeah. Now, are these addresses the location, the addresses of the agency that's been given permission, or are these actually the locations where the flying is going to happen? I think it's the I think it's the locations of the agency's permission to operate. Right. So, so the flying may may happen in other places. Yeah, I mean, nominally, sure. Um, it would be rather odd for the Polk County Sheriff's Department, however to uh, operate their drones outside the county. Yeah. Um, Kansas State, which actually has Kansas State and uh, the University of North Dakota, both have strong aviation programs. Both of them have four-year degree programs in in unmanned aerial vehicle pilot training and unmanned aircraft systems. That's how far along this whole thing is. They're, They're teaching it in college now. Right. The reason I ask is that uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of the locations on this map are inside the Washington, D.C. Beltway. And this surprises you. Why? I guess it doesn't. But I was curious whether these permissions are specifically for locations to fly or if this is just the address of the agency that was asking. Um, I think it's a little, probably a little, bit, a little bit above. Yeah. So anyways. Well, okay, and and I think I read someplace that there's actually more information forthcoming from the uh, from the Freedom, yeah. freedom of Information request. Um, they haven't gotten everything yet, but the government has promised to provide more or something like that. Yeah, so um, according to EFF, um, uh, the FAA has confirmed there are about 300 active uh, authorizations, um, and that the FAA has issued about 700 to 750 authorization since 06 when the program began. Um, there's uh, apparently some additional information coming out that is also a result of this lawsuit. Um, basically, uh, additional, uh, just additional data on this. Now, there's been a lot of talk, and I've seen a lot of talk also about um, um, the privacy aspects of all this, and, and yeah, those are significant concerns. Um, I'm, I'm as concerned about the safety aspects, uh, the safety implications of, of, of uh, drone operation. Uh, and I would I'd suggest to a lot of people that anytime you see a bunch of people, especially on Capitol Hill, and I've seen uh, some, some uh, elected officials pounding this drum, um, demanding, you know, uh, to know demanding the FAA to tell them what the FAA is doing about privacy uh, of these operators. <laughs> Hello, come in. It is not, you know, asking the FAA to, to deal with privacy uh, is, uh, um, I don't know, it's a non sequitur. I try to think of a comparison. It's not the FAA's job to worry about privacy. The FAA's job is to worry about safety in the airspace. It's and, like asking uh, people to tune into Fox for news. <laughs> okay, I knew you were going to slide that in there somehow. I, I, I wouldn't put quite that point, quite that fine a point on it, but it's like asking, um, um, I don't know, an orangutan to uh, play basketball. 
it's, it's the, the two just don't go together. Right, right. Now, they should have the jump shot down. Yeah. Funny coincidence, um, another story in the news this week, and I'm jumping ahead on the list a little bit here, is uh, in, I believe it was in Afghanistan, um, a, a, a C-130 cargo plane and a RQ-7 uh-huh. Shadow unmanned drone. Had That's a li- not new. Had a little mid-air collision here. When, did this, when did this happen? Is it not According recent? to the dateline on, on one of these web pages, this happened in August of 11. August of 11, you're right. It's uh, dateline August of 11. So... Uh, so I don't know. I mean, on one hand, I'll grant them a little that that a, 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 a you know wartime flying environment is a little bit more chaotic, but nevertheless, it you know well, it, makes it, it, one. It's one, also highly controlled, so you know it kind of goes both ways, making highly, me wonder. Wait a minute, hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold yeah, wartime and highly controlled. That goes to the top of the list of oxymoron of the night. Well. Well, uh, what I mean by that is that there aren't a lot of civilian aircraft wandering around the area, right? Um, and, and, and that that I'll give you that, but right. um, so, war and control, yeah, please. Um, anyways, you know, the the you know, I don't know. Is there anything to be said about this? Uh, it's you know, well, well, in in war, the, the the idea of being in the airspace space is either to be imposing hurt on somebody else or avoiding being hurt by somebody else. That's a whole lot different than what we usually penetrate the airspace for here, where we're not in war airspace. And that, that's a whole different show over there. That, that's not a good, valid, not even a, a, a strong basis for comparing drone operations in that airspace, which has a fraction of the traffic we have here. And drones in our airspace. I'm with Jeb. The leading edge issue on this for me is them not hitting me. Right. 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 Yep. Yep. And, yeah, and and there's clearly a debate to be had about the privacy aspects of drone operation, and, and in fact, proliferation of drone operation. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and and we can have. Uh, that that conversation here on the podcast, we can have it elsewhere too. Uh, but my primary and initial concern is is the safety aspects of this, right? Because a lot of these dr- domestic drones, we you can't count on them being these these big, you know, full size predator kind of things. There, a lot of the people are talking about little, basically, you know, some of them are RC aircraft sized mm-hmm. things. That, that we talked a little bit last episode, I think, about um, the the uh, the new statute that was put into place as part of the FAA reauthorization bill, right. wherein uh, by May 15, in, uh, in other words, you know, like 20 days from now, um, the uh, FAA must allow uh, basically the unfettered operation of these aircraft, or the, uh, I should say these craft, uh, below 400 feet and, and a certain distance away from, from uh, airports. Uh, class D airspace, uh, only operational, I should say, in Class G airspace. Um, so, I mean, that, I don't know, that ship has sailed, uh, but there's a lot more that the uh, uh, unmanned aircraft industry wants and uh, are on track to get unless someone tells them no. Yeah. So, um, this is a done deal, right? The the drones in the U.S. airspace. What are we going to do about this? You just have to be more careful. I don't think it's a done deal. I, 
the, the done deal is below 400 feet and beyond five miles from an airport, uh, Class G airspace, daylight, uh, within sight of the operator, things like that. That's a done deal. And <clears throat> I'm not so sure I have a huge um, uh, amount of heartburn with that. Um, it's, um, it's not good for, for a lot of recreational operations, but for the most part, it's not going to impact... Um, and when I say recreational operations, I'm thinking uh, ultralights, uh, um, um, hang gliding, things like that. Right. Um, for uh, I, don't, I just don't see with those restrictions, as long as A, those restrictions remain in place, B, are enforced, and C, uh, are not expanded, I don't see a whole lot of heartburn from an aviation safety standpoint. Okay. But that's where part of this new law stops and another part of this new law begins. Uh, the other part of this new law mandates that the FAA come up with, well, I'm going to use the word schemes, uh, under which uh, these unmanned aircraft can operate. Um, and that's a whole other kettle of fish. Right, right. Bigger winds, faster winds, and more airspace. Uh, and it's still up to the FAA to develop a system to make this accommodation and rules to control it and how they'll integrate it and, and, and so forth. And as bureau, bureaucracies work and as rules are promulgated and the Administrative Procedures Act and all that vagary stuff, there's a lot of, a lot of wiggle room in there that FAA and DOT can exert uh, that will frustrate Congress in the end. Uh, so, like Jeb said, there's a lot that's not a done deal here. If if the FAA has both the desire and the wherewithal to to um, exercise its discretion, shall we say? Uh, I'm not convinced that it does. Oh, you know, not not that I've seen you know uh, um, evidence to the contrary. I just haven't seen no, any no. evidence. Right. And, you know, we, we all know the FAA. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, we're obviously going to talk about this more in the future. So we'll, well, we'll go ahead, David. The, FAA, quickly, the FAA navigates on the same kind of foundation that got the Titanic in trouble. It takes it a lot of time to change headings. Yeah. Um, I think it was last week on the podcast we had some fun talking about this Air Canada incident where they uh, – the uh, uh, FO woke up, was was drowsy from a nap, and and, uh, and starlight, starbright. Yeah, yeah. Which star shall I hit tonight? And uh, <laughs> um, pushed hard on the stick in order to uh, what he thought was avoid a, a, a mid air collision. Um, and uh, uh, listener Laminar, um, my my ski plane buddy Rick S, um, in the forums, calls our attention to the fact that this whole thing about him mistaking Venus for an oncoming aircraft is actually something that's gotten blown out of proportion and really had little or nothing to do with the uh, with the pitch change. Um, and he calls our attention to a more official report um, about this incident, um, which says that uh, all the, there's a lot of information here, but if I, I think I'm su um, summarizing part of it correctly when I say that um, although the FO did initially notice 
Venus and wonder if it was a uh, an aircraft. The uh, the captain um, corrected him on that, and uh, and it was then later that the FO saw the actual air, other aircraft that they were trying to keep an eye on, and and then made a misjudgment about about its position, you know, relative to them, and that's when he pushed the yoke. So. Uh, Wait a minute. He saw an airplane below him and pushed the yoke over? Apparently. No, 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 no. We talked about this last episode. Yeah. Uh, we, we took the, the visual uh, perception, uh, the, the uh, right. visual illusions. Yeah. So, yeah, we did uh, talk about it. When, you know, you've got a target coming on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but my, 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 my point is, no, he did not mistake. Uh, well, he, he did mistake an aircraft below him for being either above or at co-altitude and push the nose over. But that's the visual illusion at work. Right, yeah. And Venus, although Venus was, you know, kind of commented on early on, that wasn't literally what he was trying to avoid. Yeah. The, the, report was, says the, the report says the FO initially mistook the planet Venus for an aircraft, but the captain advised him that the target was such and such a position. Yeah. So Not, not the planet Venus. Yep. And uh, and uh, Rick S uh, in the forums, uh, uh, you know, commented on the fact that the uh, the uh, mainstream media blew this out of proportion by you know copying the story over and over again and emphasizing the part of it that wasn't relevant. And and of course we got into that and did the same thing. So there you go. Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Well, there you go. That could be the title. There you go. That's the title of this episode right there. So, anyways, uh, that's. Uh, that's a little bit more information about that particular incident. Let's see now. What do we got here? A story that kind of came and went, in the, well, not, not went, but has been somewhat resolved in the last week, is uh, involving this, uh, this uh, proposed bill in the U.S. Congress that might have grounded a lot, if not all, of the privately owned warbirds that, uh, that fly here in the U.S., and uh, and there was a lot of uh, understandably a, a lot of concern about uh, what this was going to do, and uh, and then so what's what's changed? Um, uh, apparently the the uh, basically the bill has been modified or, or or cut down to the point where it's not going to do the kind of grounding that people thought. The, the CAF makes a very good observation here. It's one of the first things I saw when I re- read this statement from the Congressman. Now let's let's back up a little bit. Uh, U.S. Representative Mike Turner, a Republican from Ohio's 3rd Congressional District, decided it would be just a nifty idea um, for the Department of Defense to ban or to, to cease making any transfers of surplus aircraft or parts to anyone, basically, who would want to fly these aircraft right. uh, or, these, or these parts. And clearly that hits the commemorative Air Force right in its wallet, so to speak, right. or, or certainly right in the heart of, of what, they, what they try to do, what they want to do, and which I think all three of us support. Uh, um, so anyway, the, the punchline here is that this, this congressman uh, is from Dayton, Ohio. and um, He's the former Dayton, mayor. Dayton, of course, is the, the home of the U.S. Air Force's museum where they have... Uh, I would. I've never been there. Uh, I'm sure listeners who have would 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 correct me, but I, I would guess that they have pretty much every aircraft uh, that was a mainline uh, car- cargo or combat aircraft for the U.S. Air Force since day one, including the U.S. Army Air Force. Um, <clears throat> so there was a great big to do. There was you know Facebook pages were were uh, uh, links were flown flying around literally and figuratively and and all of this and. 
then the congressman came to came out a few days later and made made a statement uh, to the effect of the following: it "says Dayton is home to the National Museum of the Air Force and has the largest collection of historical military aircraft in the world. I know the value and importance that the facility has in honoring sacrifices of our veterans, and as a symbol that freedom isn't free." Warburg community plays an important role in bringing World War II era aircraft to our nation's citizens. These rotary craft are ambassadors of freedom's price, and I do not support grounding any of them. Um, I see two glaring problems right off the top. Mm-hmm. It says, you know, Warburg community plays an important role in bringing World War II era aircraft to our nation's citizens. Wrong. It plays an important role in bringing all military aircraft mm-hmm. U.S. as well as, as foreign operated uh, uh, from all uh, theaters, from all wars to back to, to, to the public. Uh, we have Japanese Zeros operated by CAF. Um, we have uh, uh, aircraft that were not in World War II operated by CAF, etc. etc. Uh, but the real, the real curious part of this is these rotary aircraft, these rotary craft, are ambassadors of freedom's price, et cetera, et cetera. What the hell is a rotary craft? Yeah. Is this is this is this like a little tool that spins up to like twenty thousand RPM and and we use it to grind plastic off the model airplane we're building? Right. I, I don't know what that's referring. to. I don't to. know what that is. And, yeah. and CAF correctly points out that if he's talking about rotor craft, then that still wouldn't you know solve our problem. A, B. Um, it's a solution in search of a problem. Yeah. I'm, and, and I'm sorry, but I don't consider any of this settled. I don't either. A, a verbal commitment from this guy. Uh-uh. It means that, oh, I won't try to put it in that bill, but you, now you've got to watch him like a hawk because he's the former mayor of Dayton. Uh, there's been some friction in the past between the commemorative air force and the national museum right. of the united states right. air force over aircraft that were legitimately loaned to the caf under prior ownership or leadership of the museum that later me- leadership decided they, they they wanted to undo and they got really pissy about it when the caf started making plans to restore this aircraft and fly it and uh you know it's not like this costs the government any money uh but it's sure costing them necessary goodwill and the good congressman from ohio i'm sorry sir but i don't know what axe you're grinding there but uh if you would like to see people in aviation combined to go beyond lobbying their house members to not have this insanity continue wait till we all start lobbying to have people boycott the national museum of the united states air force in dayton ohio uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. thank you yeah. jeb did you get the i sent a link to uh, the story that talks about how yeah that's what was beeping yeah so yeah that, that, that's what i looked at that and, I and go, that's what well, david's that's, referring to yeah that's good for the moment for this particular set of conditions but, you know, it's like, oh, uh, what are the three great lies? Well, this is one of them. Oh, I, got, I, I, I won't try to do anything with this in that bill. I won't try to amend it into that bill. Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. Okay, chief of staff, let's find out where else we can slide this puppy in. Maybe we can get it in on a conference where nobody will read it and notice. Right, 
Right. Mm-hmm. This is I'm not sorry, the f- do that, Congressman, do that, Congressman, and win the ire of every freaking person that I can tell. And I've been to the museum. It's a nice museum. You do mm-hmm. not want to piss us off over this. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's exactly right. This is not the first time this issue has come up. This was this almost exact same kind of... Uh, of uh, Prohibition was proposed, mm-hmm. what, I don't know, maybe five years ago-ish? Years. It's been about ten years. Has it been ten? Yeah. It, what was called at the time demilitarization. Right. Uh, Dave, do you remember much about that? Oh, I remember that that was in the wake of the war on terror starting up. Oh, you're right. That's what, Yeah, you're right. That's when the time okay, period was. And all yeah. of a sudden, all of these old war birds were instant threats to the national security because, you know, some of those old guys from Doolittle's Raiders might rearm those old B-25s and go dropping incendiaries where they shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Which so. really caused some incendiary reactions. No, mm-hmm. but but it it, it kind of, you know it was sh- at the risk of no pun intended. It was shot down back then, and uh, <laughs> um, you know I don't know. As I commented on the forums, I, you know I mean I, one of the things that makes me worry about this not quite as much is that. These warbirds are are owned by guys, mostly guys, um, who have a lot of money or control a lot of money, and right. and I got to figure that they're going to apply that money, you know, at the government in order to get these well, kinds some, of laws. Some of those airplanes are not on loan from anywhere. That's they right. were surplus. They were cashed out, and these individuals bought them. It's uh-huh. stuff that belongs to, for example the Collins Foundation or the Commemorative Air Force or some of the other museum operations where they fly airplanes. Right. But there was a document loaning that airplane to that institution for the purpose of its display. Yeah, and And, they'd be perfectly happy to have them all be static displays. They're fine. And for this Nimnol to want to turn that around inside out over some unimaginably bogus idea that it's protecting the public on a safety level... Congressman, you do not want to start this fight. No. We, there are hundreds no. of thousands of us, and we will tell millions more that the last place you want to spend a penny of freaking money is on the National Museum of the Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, yeah. And I would also point out that restricting – well, first of all, you know, a, lot of this, uh, a lot of this ship has already left uh, harbor. Uh, a lot of this ship has already sailed. Um, there's already a lot of warbirds out there. Um, and, you know, unless you want to start figuring out their value and how you're going to compensate their owners, um, trying to ground them is going to earn you um, a lot of egg on your face and, and a, a lot more vitriol than, than you might be listening to here. That but, would arguably be a taking in, yeah. in, the, in the constitutional yeah. sense of a taking. Yeah. And that you would owe your government then would owe those people money for taking that yeah. use away from them. Here's the punchline: unless you want to expand this um, to beyond U.S. military aircraft, it's going to be completely ineffectual. Right now, on Trade Plane, I'm looking at four Russian MiGs for sale. Mm-hmm. Okay, one of them is only is priced at only thirty five grand. Boo wah! Um, another one's priced at ninety five grand. And these are MiG 21s that, according to a blurb here on Trade Plane, are capable of 1,200 knots. That's a Mach 2 airplane, baby. Okay. Up high. So, again, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this, uh, uh, has, a lot of this boat has already sailed. 
Um, there's there's uh, British manufacturer, uh, uh, French manufacturer jets available. This is just on trader plane, trader plane right now. Yeah, um, this, this is this is an axe being ground for the museum. It sure it is. It sure you know, is. strictly Congressman Turner. Pick a fight with us, and if you want to send somebody on and talk to us and try to make your case for why this protects anybody from anything except whoever writes you a check for this kind of crap, uh, yeah, we welcome it. Send, send them over, but don't pick this fight. Trust okay. me. All right. Moving on. Moving on here. Let's see. Uh, the oh, I hate. Time out. Yeah. I hate bullies. Time out. Time out. A complete Hawker Hunter. <laughs> Two seed fighter bomber complete it's it's a project but um nineteen thousand dollars wow we may have found ucap one (laughs) um i'll 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 volunteer to stand in front of the engines during start with the fire extinguisher and go spool it up it'd be cool to taxi it around hidden river it would (laughs) it would probably say probably scare the crap out of wilson which is a good thing. Yeah, which is a good thing. What does it mean that um, e- the Eclipse 550 got a uh, earned a PC? What's that? That's production a good certificate. Thing. A what? And I don't, David, production what is it? Certificate. A production, production certificate. certificate. Okay, good. And what does that mean? That means they can produce airplanes. They can produce parts uh, that they don't have to have an FAA staff employee sitting on the production line uh, they, stamping everything they, that comes down the line. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did the did the earlier incarnation of Eclipse ever get a production certificate? No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't think no, I didn't think those they airplane, did. Either. Those airplanes went out in batches that were always different than the prior batch. And right. you know, Mooney didn't have a production certificate until in the late nineties. I I remember seeing something like really? that. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. They they would bring somebody in from the FAA. Every week, who would in, spend a, a day or two days inspecting and signing off airplanes that had been produced until finally in the late 90s, they got a production certificate just as the place was starting to tank. They got more efficient. Uh, but, yeah, this means that uh, Eclipse can build airplanes, conformal airplanes. Now they're working on certifying the improvements and starting production of the 550. Mm-hmm which is an updated incarnation of the 500, and they're working to bring all the 500s up to 550 level. And then the folks at Sikorsky, which invested some money in this, seem to <laughs> a lot of cold water on this idea of them bringing airplane back into production, saying, well, we've basically put all the money we're interested in putting into it, and we don't have any plans to support production return. And uh, so I... I Kind of got the feeling that the folks from Eclipse Aerospace kind of shrugged and said, "Yeah, that's okay. We don't need more money from you." I, you know, I've never understood why Sikorsky invested in this thing. This just seems oh, like, oh, dude, what? Why? Three words. Yeah. Friction stir welding. Oh, okay. All right. No, that makes total sense. That's this, this, uh, this uh, sort of state of the art fastening me- method that uh, mm-hmm. that they were using to put the clips together. All right. Now that makes total sense. And then there's the uh, fire extinguishing technology that Eclipse developed that has been certified. It is uh, supposed to be head and shoulders better than Halon. 
both in terms of being able to use equipment again and the environmental impact, uh, and smaller and lighter and more compact. And uh, Eclipse Aviation actually developed some pretty interesting technology. It's a shame that their business plan was so far up a receptacle that it never got a chance to see daylight. <laughs> Moving on. Okay, here we go. Uh, new feature this week. Uh, I'm going to try this. We'll see whether anything comes of this. I've, I've boiled down a handful of uh, questions from listeners. We're, we've always uh, uh, re- you know, referred to things that we hear from listeners in the forums and whatnot, but a lot of times they're, uh, they're longer conversations. I, I've just boiled down a handful of uh, shorter questions that I've seen recently from listeners. So, so let's kind of. Work so this on. would be the three, four, four under listener questions. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer all three of them. Okay, go all, ahead. And one swell food. Swell food. The swell answers food. are. Yeah. One one swell food. <laughs> the answers are. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> listener uh, 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 Bill M, one of my uh, uh, Nashua brunch uh, buddies, uh, asks us. He says, "I'd be interested to hear some more about the differences between Rotax and some of the other experimental category." Eng- category engines in comparison to the Lycoming and Continentals that are, a lot of us are more familiar with. I mean, that's kind of an interesting question. What, what makes, it is a good question. What makes the Rotaxes and the Jabiru's and those kinds of things different, better, I don't know, than... Uh, than well, first off, first off, Bill should, should uh, uh, be aware of one thing, that Rotax actually makes a certificated engine as well. Mm-hmm. It, there's a certificated version of the, uh, of the uh, 912. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's now up to 2,000-hour TBO. Uh, it's used in experimental aircraft. It can be used in certificated aircraft. It's the version used in a lot of light sport aircraft. Uh, some of the differences, uh, let's start with some of the mechanics. For example, the 912 family of Rotax engines all have liquid-cooled cylinder heads and air-cooled barrels Mm -hmm. and flywheel alternators and electronic ignition systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most Continental and Lycomings, not all, but most Continental and Lycomings do have none of those. Uh, The Jabiru's are almost like custom-built works of art. Uh, they're machined from billet stock. Uh, there's very little in the way of casting that goes into those engines. Uh, it, and uh, they're very, very high precision. They also use flywheel uh, alternators, I believe, and uh, uh, electronic ignition <laughs> as opposed to mechanical magnetos. Yeah, Jeb, go ahead. You, you may not have gotten there yet, but there's one other significant difference between um, I have to say average Rotax. Not all Rotaxes, I'm thinking, well, perhaps all of them, I'm not sure. That's a limit of my knowledge. But, but most of the Rotaxes with which I'm familiar are geared engines. They're all, they all use reduction drives. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, the 277 single used a belt. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 447, the 502, the 582s. Uh, some of them use belts. Some of them use gearboxes. Uh, the 912 series has pretty much all been gearboxes. So mm-hmm. now what do these differences mean in terms of the way you use them and operate them um, versus the Lycomings and Continentals? 
Where to start? Well, first off, when you're setting tack power or setting power by a tachometer in a 912, 582, 502 Rotax engine, uh, you're looking at an engine RPM that's much higher than what you're used to looking at right, in that, direct drive engines. And I'm not talking just about the RPM thing. I'm talking about all of these issues. You know, the fact that uh, that they're different. Is it? Does it make them cheaper? Does it make them more reliable? Does it? You know, what do these differences <clears throat> produce? It, it makes them different. Yeah. Okay. No, well, I mean, really, that's basically it, right? Some some of it means that they can develop an equivalent amount of power with a lighter, smaller displacement engine by using a higher RPM. Okay. Now, in the case of the 582 Rotax, which is a liquid-cooled engine, uh, its fuel efficiency is still typical of a two-stroke because it is a two-stroke engine which means you've got double the firing cycles per RPM that you would on the same number of cylinders in a four-stroke. The 912 family, the 912s, 914s, those are four-stroke engines. And the liquid cooling of the heads combined with the ignition uh, would work to give you a lower specific fuel consumption number. And specific fuel consumption is defined by pounds of fuel per horsepower per hour of operation. But I can distill it down into something much simpler. It means that if you're flying a 100-horsepower Continental, with the, the, the LSA version, it's been lightened up and the efficiency improved and all that, uh, in an airframe and getting 75% power out of it, you're going to be burning about 5.5 to 5.7 gallons an hour of fuel at cruise setting at altitude. That's optimal. A 912 developing the same amount of horsepower is going to be running much higher RPM and somehow or another getting much lower specific fuel consumption to the neighborhood of 4.1 to 4.6 gallons an hour to get the same kind of speed in the same airframe. Okay, that's a re- that's a really significant thing over the life of an engine. I agree, Jeb. Wrap this up for us, and we'll move on to the other question. Uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't. I, I don't know that I'd characterize uh, either in- engine a certificated Lycoming slash Continental versus a uh, certificated uh, Rotax as being uh, better or worse than uh, uh, the, the uh, competition. Um, it's different. Great. Agreed. It's it's designed for a different purpose. Um, in some cases, it's designed to a different standard, um, but at the same time, those engines, uh, these engines, I should say, uh, the Rotax is really what I should say, uh, ha- have been proven time and time again for for their reliability and and uh, um, just as an Lycoming or or a Continental has. Uh, secondly, uh, um. Everybody's had a problem with a Lycoming or Continental. doesn't mean you're not going to have a problem with a Rotax. Yeah. Okay. Oh, weight is the other big thing. Uh, A 100-horse Continental, 100-horse Lycoming is going to have about 30 to 40 pounds on the 912 Rotax at 100 horse. Okay, good. Listener Tim V. of Panama City, Florida asks, Can you guys give me your opinion of the Glassair Super 2 as a suitable airplane for a 100-hour VFR pilot? I'm not sure if you guys know anything about this airplane. Do you? I, I looked it up on, on the Glassair website. I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, glassairaviation1s.com. And what do you think? Uh, 
Um, again, it, I, I, I come back to my initial answer. It depends. It, is, it, uh, is it a reasonable airplane for a low-time VFR pilot to fly? It can be. Yeah, okay. It, it, again, it depends. Uh, uh, the average uh, low-time VFR-only private pilot um, with which I'm familiar, with whom I'm familiar, uh, is probably not the best choice. He or she should probably be looking to get some some substantial instructional time in this airplane before soloing it or, or taking uh, passengers along. It's a relatively uh, powerful airplane, 180 horsepower. Um, uh, specifications where the, the, the gross weight is um, uh, 2,000 pounds um, with a standard wing and 2,100 pounds with, a, with an extended wing. Um, that's even lighter than, say, uh, a Piper Archer, which I think is 2550 is gross on those with the same engine, 180 horsepower engine. Um, <clears throat> Cessna 172 with 180 is probably around 2500, 2550 also. So it's a relatively uh, nimble, uh, relatively quick airplane. That doesn't mean it can't be flown safely yep. okay. by a 100-hour pilot. If he, or, if he or she has the experience, the training, and the, um, how should I put it, the judgment to correctly operate the airplane. Sounds good. David, do you know anything about the Glass Air Super 2? Anything I, you I've, got a little, I've got a little time in them years ago. Uh, if, it's, if it's the airplane I'm looking at, it's the retract bubble canopy, low wing. Uh, it's a tricycle gear airplane. Uh, really efficient. High wing loading, though. Uh, it's not a short field airplane. It's not a rough field airplane. Uh, it wouldn't be something that I would recommend for a hundred hour pilot, unless you were prepared to tell me that that hundred hours is in the last six months, that you are a heavy duty flyer, you're flying regularly, and you're going to be flying this regularly, because this is not an airplane to be slack in. Yeah. Okay. Right. Sounds good. Finally, uh, listener Tom C. of Alexandria, Virginia asks, is it ever okay for a passenger to enter or exit the plane while the prop is spinning? That's back to Jeb's SOP answer. Depends. Really? Mm -hmm. you, okay. Under yeah. what circumstances is it okay? How, how do you do it safely? Well, I've exited and entered aircraft that were twin-engine aircraft where they were able to break the propeller on the engine on the side where passengers came and went. And that was just a convenience thing to protect them from prop blast because they would have to walk 30 feet around the wing and come back in toward the fuselage to encounter the propeller on those airplanes. You're talking about a twin here? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in my Comanche, uh, I had people get out of the airplane from the front seat, go down the right wing walkway, and exit to the rear with the engine at low idle, no sweat, no strain. Uh I also had somebody get in the airplane to fill the empty seat that had just been because I was given rides, and that was the way we were getting the number of people turned around that we wanted to get turned around. But it was straight up from behind, come in the door, and when you got out, you go straight back and rejoin the crowd. Uh, other circumstances, I've shut the engine down just to have somebody get out and walk away because it was their very first airplane ride. There was nobody right. out there to help them out. Uh, 
and it was my responsibility. That I'd walk them out to the airplane. I'm walking them back. Okay, right. Jeb, right. what do you what do you think? I I, I can't disagree with anything Dave just said. I, I'd summarize it by saying, you know, it depends on who the passenger is. Um, if you've got a CFI uh, who's giving you your your um, your solo, um, ding ding ding. Okay, he he's gonna we're gonna you're gonna stop on a taxiway. Uh, he's going to tell you, don't shut down. I'll get out, come back and pick me up after three bangs and goes. Okay. It's, so that's, there's, there's, a, there's a common uh, practice for, for that, uh, that operation right now, right there. Now, um, one of the uh, – I'm, I'm speculating here. There was an incident – I won't say an incident. There was an accident. Uh, it's been going on six months or so ago now where uh, I uh, – a woman who was a, uh, a model and uh, a, a clothing blogger and, and uh, fairly well known right. uh, in, her, in her trade um, exited uh, what I think was a Cessna uh, at night on a ramp um, under the, circ- the circumstances to me are unknown, uh, but ended up walking into the turning propeller. Yeah. She survived that, yeah. Um, but uh, was was severely uh, injured, uh, lost an eye, I believe, some uh, some facial disfigurement. Um, I don't know the extent of her her injuries. That is a situation that uh, uh, you know. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, but anytime um, I have uh, passengers, and when I use the term passenger, I'm thinking non-rated, non-certificated pilots who are sitting in the airplane with me, um, I basically tell them, you know, unless, you know, we come down on something that's not a runway, uh, don't touch the door. Mm-hmm. Don't touch the door handle. Um, I'll open the door. I'll close the door. And I'm only going to open or close the door, you know, <laughs> unlike some people we know with storm windows, I'm only going to open and close the door um, when the propeller's not turning. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Listeners, send us your uh, short listener questions uh, to uh, by email to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com or post them in the forums. Keep them short and terse. Um, that's not to say that we won't respond to longer conversational things in the forums, but uh, we'd like to hear your, your shorter, uh, simpler, you know, more terse questions. And uh, um, I think it might be interesting fodder for a conversation. Mm-hmm. Shout-outs. What do we got here? I got a couple, but uh, anything on this list you guys want to jump in on? Let's do the Washington Post. All right. Okay. Yeah, Washington Post was kind of cool, wasn't it? Yeah, what, it was. One of you guys tell us what happened with the Washington Post. David, you were the one, and this was David, all. Yeah. You were the focal point of this thing, David. So tell us what happened with the what Washington Post. Well, about a week ago, uh, over a week ago, uh, office phone rang. Young man, uh, voice on the line, said he was John Kelly with the Washington Post. Uh, he was the answer man columnist. And that uh, he'd received a question based on one of our listeners uh, who had put to him uh, to check the veracity of a claim that we talked about in Podcast 262 uh, about Jim Greenwood former FAA PR guy, former Learjet executive, died back in November when we were doing 262, had flown a uh, biplane under uh, a bridge on the Potomac there in Washington, D.C. 
Mr. Kelly mistakenly thought that I'd produced the video that was on YouTube where Jim Greenwood was talking about this, but that was my old friend Jim Davis, so I referred him to Davis. They talked together, uh, and we got a mention in the listener's question and made it into Saturday's Washington Post. I guess that would have been uh, Saturday the 21st. Yeah. Yeah, so very Age cool. C three, so yeah. uh, and we made it onto their internet blog, and uh, I, I got light ups from people all around the country about that, and to John Kelly and to our listeners, saying thanks a whole lot, and uh, wow, it's amazing, it's incredible. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, but you know, we're we're busted now, man. We've carefully cultivated a reputation of not knowing what the heck we're talking about, and. Uh, Right, and as you put it, we were fact-checked by the Post and past muster. So. Yeah, I know. Who would have thought? Who, yeah, who would have thought? So, uh, yeah, we thank uh, listener, I guess it was listener Brian Carlson, uh, who uh, who uh, asked this question of the uh, Washington Post, and uh, um, it was cool to get that uh, that visibility. Yeah. And, uh, and to and to hear the more about that story. It's a kind of an interesting story about, uh, about uh, Greenwood flying underneath the bridge. Yeah, it was Brian Carlson, who interestingly lives in Reston, Virginia, which was where uh, Bride Annie was living when when we first met years ago. Uh, We've got a lot of friends in Reston. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In the forums, Flyer333 calls our attention to – we've talked uh, off and on occasionally over the years uh, about legendary aviation writer Richard Bach. Um, who uh, has done a lot of interest in writing, um, uh, some of it somewhat idiosyncratic, but but all, all of it very passionate about about the, the joy of aviation. And um, listener Flyer 33 calls our attention to the fact that Richard Bach uh, continues to write about aviation in his blog at uh, richardbach.com. It's Richard B-A-C-H. Dot com, and so uh, if you if you and, and I haven't read anything of, of of Box in quite some time, so I'm looking forward to digging into this and yeah, re- reading some of his more recent stuff. Um, so uh, you might want to check that out. Uh, he's uh, he's you know he, he's perhaps most notorious for um, his short book Jonathan Livingston Seagull, which he wrote a long long time ago. But then he went on to write a lot, a lot of uh, books and, and articles that were a little bit more traditional about aviation. And then he kind of, he kind of got off on a on a tangent. And he has kind of an interesting attitude about aviation well, and if about life. Serves the book went on to a movie, and the movie went on to big success. And you know, some of that stuff can make it a lot easier to pick and choose what you want to do in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, I, I recommend people to it. I'm going to be digging into it, and uh, we may actually even talk about some of it here on the podcast in the future. That's richardbach.com, B-A-C-H, Richard, B-A-C-H, dot Flying com. a C-Ray Amphib, yeah. who and why. Yeah, there you go. What else? Who's got something else? I got a quickie. Go ahead. To, to our good folks at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's Aviation Safety Reporting System. One million safety incident reports as of back in March. We got a link on issue 387 with the show notes. Uh, They got talk about three light sport aircraft incidents and a couple of regular GA and airline ones. But one million incident reports to ASRS. And folks, if you're not a regular reader or subscriber, you're missing one of the more interesting little safety briefings that you can get for yourself. 
at any cost. In, uh, in episode 281, we had a lot of fun making reference to uh, a, a quote that uh, we kept making reference to the, a dead bee. Have you ever been stung by a dead bee? Ever been bit by a dead bee? Yeah, ever been bit by a dead bee. And, uh, they, can, uh, they can hurt you worse than a live one. I know, yeah, I know. And Dave and I, and I think Jeb as well, uh, were familiar with this quote, um, and in fact familiar with the movie that it came from, To Have and Have Not. I had lunch, uh, brunch actually, um, with a bunch of uh, friends down at Nashua last weekend, and Jeff Ward there, our show note guy, and other lots of other help he gives us in the podcast, was there. And he had posted in the show notes a link to a YouTube click clip, excuse me, of uh, <laughs> or click um, easy for you to say. No, no, no. Of uh, of uh, a, a little clip from the movie to have and have not, um, where Walter Brennan is is interacting with uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall uh, about the dead bee thing, and it was a cool clip. Jeff, I was surprised. Jeff, when we had brunch that day, mentioned to me that he went digging for this because he was not familiar with uh, either the dead bee quote or the title have and have not which really yeah i know you know and i mean just like kids these days my so gosh so we're, we're 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 expanding people's cultural horizons I guess so. as well. get off my lawn <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> line and kugel and now legendary humphrey bogart movies um so yeah to have and have not it's a legendary humphrey bogart movie a movie that is actually truly legendary for being the movie that contains the uh, the quote from lauren bacall where you know she, the, the quote where she says, uh, uh, no, no, whoa, 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 whoa. What? This is a family podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, no, they did it in the movie in the 19, whatever it was, 40s, so it has to be. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, where she said, uh, I, I, you know, I don't have the exact quote in you front know, of me here. You know, but how, you, to whistle, you know how to whistle, wait, do you? Wait, don't you? wait, wait. What? What? Go ahead. If you're going to do this, yeah, it's got to be done right. All right. Okay. Go ahead. All right. It goes like this. Yeah. Lauren Bacall has just finished kind of a strange little evening with Rick, uh, with, uh, with Humphrey Bogart's character. <laughs> which he's, yeah. I don't think, was he Rick in that movie too? Or, but I know what you mean. Go ahead, David. No, Sorry, David. Go ahead. He, you know, he, he, he's, she's walking around. He goes, take a look. There's no strings on me. Yeah, I know. Okay. Well, I'm going back to my room now. She's all pissed off. So if you want anything else... Just whistle. You do know how to put your uh, how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Yeah, oh yeah. And this is like seriously racy for the time. I mean, this is like Lauren Bacall is at the time is like seventeen years old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, really? I didn't know that Eight, part. Eighteen, seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. really yeah. young. Yeah. This yeah. this is her first major motion picture role. Yeah. Yeah, so this is uh, now. I gotta do this quickly here. Let's see. Let me go into and the, and the chemistry between Bacall and Bogart. Well, I mean, it you, comes it comes through the camera, through the celluloid, yeah. smacks you in the face, and makes you drool. It's so real. You both are familiar with the poster I have hanging in my hallway. I, I am. It's a great poster. <laughs> yeah, at, at Burnside Manor, um, uh, with yeah. Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart sitting. In a nightclub uh, with uh, Lauren Bacall on his right elbow and Marilyn Monroe on his left elbow. And his eyes are looking at Marilyn Monroe's chest while um, uh, Lauren Bacall's eyes would drill a hole through him if, uh, if she were able. Uh, it's a classic, classic shot, classic poster, classic photograph. Yeah, but, no, yeah, I agree. But it, 
there's no way that Marilyn was a threat to Lauren. No. No. Yeah, so I urge you, uh, you know, I'm trying to find who, I don't know, it doesn't appear that Netflix if, has. If, you, if you're not familiar with To Have and Have Not. Oh, you got to. Uh, Netflix does. Netflix has it. It might not be for streaming, but it's there. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm sure they have it in on DVD. I was looking for streaming. Check and it whatever out. Whatever you do, don't let yourself get bit by a dead bee. By a dead bee. Uh, what else? Any other shout outs before we wrap this thing up? Get off my lawn. <laughs> hey, Dreamliner's coming to National Airport uh, May 10th. So if you live in the vicinity, uh, that wouldn't be a, a bad thing to see because that's a big airplane coming into a small airport. Yep. Hey, that's Dave Higdon. Uh, he's an aviation photographer and an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what have you been working on? Anything we can check out? Well, let's see. I've been working on something for a magazine. Uh, and really? Yeah. Go figure, huh? And, and, and working on uh, arrangements for Oshkosh and talking to folks up there about that. Yeah. yeah. Right. We get to do that again, don't yeah, we? Yeah, really. Well, David, where, where can people find you on the Internet in general? Oh, avbuyer.com, AEA.net. Uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com. If you're an NBAA member, you can find my work on Business Aviation Insider, where I've got a couple of pieces coming out in the next issue. That's a bi-monthly, but you got to be an NBAA member to see that one. And Sorry, it's not quite the same as joining AOPA. Oh, well. Oh, well. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what have you been working on? Oh, uh, trying to finish up a few projects that uh, are you know, slightly overdue, but I'm having a little bit of fun with. Uh, also the source of my, my writer's block, so that's you know kind of a downer. But uh, getting ready to gear up for the next issue of uh, Aviation Safety Magazine. Uh, we'll have an article uh, from our own Amy uh, Labota. We'll have an article uh, from our own Dave Higdon, uh, the exact nature of which uh, we haven't really nailed down yet, but we'll get to it. <laughs> but it's um, in progress, and it'll be done soon. That's right. That's right. But folks, uh, coming, folks, coming if you soon didn't, to a mailbox near you. Yeah, I know. Folks, if you weren't really you, – what you just heard was the editor gently – Pinging the writer, all right. It's no, like no, no. It, it actually is the other way around. We're, we're we're pinging each other. We both gotta sit down and collaborate on something. And, I see. And, and, yeah, we've uh, both been kind of on different tears, and we've agreed on a topic and a thread, and then we've got to do this little, this little uh, uh, ballet dance. I see. We have to do this little dance where you know he he. Uh, Suggest that he's subservient to my my editor my editorial direction and and I pretend that uh, I'm going to let him get away with it. So <laughs> yeah, I see. <laughs> and Jeb, we're well defined, but it's it's it is a dance. Where in general, Jeb, can people find you on the internet? jburnside.com, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, uh, aea.net occasionally, increasingly occasionally, and avweb.com also. Yeah. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You uh, Please check out my latest uh, Kindle ebook, Around the Field, Volume 1, the stories of the people, places, and planes of the Oshkosh Fly-In. Uh, you can learn more about that and my other ebooks at Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson, and uh, more general information about me at JackHodgson.com and AroundTheField.net. 
Big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Roy Searle, Jim Goldman, who did a really great one last week, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. Goldman did one? You didn't. I told you to go listen. Oh, See, this is what man, you get. You got to hear that one. This is what you it get for not classic. listening. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the end of uh, the previous episode. Go check it out. Right. Uh, we are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just ten or fifteen dollars over the span of a year is a big, big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Live long, be old. By going to fly because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. And if you doubt that, just look at the cast of this outfit. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Adios. My opinion flying breaks all the laws of physics. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. I'm Stephen Hawking, but you knew that. The sum of the squares of the legs of a right triangle is equal to the square of the hypotenuse. The sum of the squares of the legs of the sum of the squares of the sum of the squares the sum of the squares the sum of the squares the sum of 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 the squares the sum of the squares of the legs of a right triangle is equal to the square of the hypotenuse.